1: Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at BeatTheStigma.org.
2: Welcome to the 309th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with A. Kendra Green, author of the new book, The Museum of Wales You Will Never See, and other excursions to Iceland's most unusual museums. Stay tuned for the interview. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. Listen to audiobooks during your commute while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. Reading and Writing Podcast special offer? Get two audiobooks for the price of one with your first month of membership, with code RWPODCAST. That's code RWPODCAST for two audiobooks for the price of one for your first month of membership at Libro.fm. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is A. Kendra Green, author of the new book, The Museum of Wells You Will Never See, and Other Excursions to Iceland's Most Unusual Museums. Green is an essayist, printer, and maker of artists' books. A. Kendra Green, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you. It's so nice to be here, Jeff.
2: Sure. If someone listening hasn't heard about your new book, how would you describe the Museum of Wells you will never see?
0: I've been enjoying reading how other people describe it uh, and the way that it ends up at an intersection of a bunch of places. So I think of it as being about these two fundamental human desires, right? The way that we love things, right? Just stuff, material possessions, owning things, texture. And then the way that we also love story. And at the end of the day, we love story more, right? Push comes to shove. We will hold onto things, uh, restore things, repurpose things, invent things, make things so that they help us hold onto the stories that we need. So it's a book that about how collections become museums and how museums stop needing physical things at all.
2: And so what led you to writing the book and your interest in Icelandic museums?
0: Yeah, so I've got a background in museums. I was taking photography classes, and that led me to working in a photography museum. And I started paying attention to all of the amazing things that happened behind the scenes that no one ever talked about. And uh, as I moved on in my career and was managing a collection, it just seemed so strange to me that these storytelling institutions didn't tell their own stories. And of course, the stories were happening all the time, right? The, the physical things of the world don't want to be held on to, right? Entropy is going to win. And then you interact with the public, and that's a whole new set of variables. So i had gone to Iceland to look at uh, one particular museum, the Icelandic Pathological Museum. Which believes that it is the only museum in the world to collect a phallic specimen of every mammal native to that country, which is pretty easy to do in a place <laughs> that's that far north, right? It's a, a small island, relatively speaking, not a lot of biodiversity. And I started looking at this one place, and I realized it is sort of fundamentally a museum about language, right? The this gap between the what we what comes to mind if you're talking about a penis museum and then the actual comparative anatomy fact of what it is that is right sober and rooted in a long-standing scientific tradition and while i was in country looking at this one museum i was trying to put it into context trying to figure out what kind of place made it and i went to maybe another 20 museums and I started to notice that they had all been established since 2000, since 1995 at the earliest, and this was back in 2011. And so I was trying to figure out this this bloom of museums that happens in Iceland. It's it's sort of hard to put an exact number on it, but for a country of 330,000 people, the uh, 214 sorry the 2014 count by the local museum studies professor at uh, listed 265 museums and public collections and uh, a couple of them have closed but mostly that number has only gone up since then
2: and and you mentioned as you just mentioned and you mentioned in the book that most of these museums the 265 were created in the last 20 years what what was the reason for that creation?
0: I feel like the, the the first hypothesis I had, right, with my American mind, was that it fits pretty neatly with a big rise in tourism to Iceland, and so I started expecting that what you would have would be a bunch of tourist traps, and and they just never are, or right, maybe one on the island that there's this attention to stagecraft and the focus of really niche collecting missions. I love that there is one museum devoted just to the history of French fishermen in Iceland, right? That is worthy of one museum, that topic right there. <laughs> and right I've been uh, visiting the island uh, about every year since 2011, I've been in all sorts of museums, talked to all sorts of museum professionals and other writers and scholars and, No one, no one will ever say that the reason that there's so many museums now is because of tourism. And I don't, I don't think they're being coy. I think that there's something else. I think that uh, there's some sort of shifts in government funding that maybe account for some of it. Uh, Mostly, I think you have a nation that has been inhabited for a thousand years and it's been the poorest nation in Europe for a lot of that time, definitely competing for the title if it wasn't winning it outright. And a lot of that uh, cultural energy has been funneled into language, into story, into writing. They have been one of the most literate places on the globe for a very long time, right? Mandatory literacy, literacy that goes back centuries, the legislative mandate that you had the right to a tutor to come to your farm for a month every year, but just goes way, way, way back. So you've got a place that knows how to tell a story I think partly they were just in a good position to be good at museums. Uh, And then if you look at coming out of World War II, Iceland begins this this rapid trajectory of economic growth that I think makes it that you can stand back and look at the things you've been holding on to all this time, right? that you can afford the places to put them, and now that people are coming to see them, they move out of these, these living rooms, these parlors, and into more public places. Uh, it's been a fascination of mine kind of from the beginning. Uh, I've lived in Chile and Korea and Greece, and nowhere in the world have I ever seen private collections become public museums with such ease, right? They just, it's like there's no border. And I think partly that's because in the language there is no border, right? The the Icelandic word sup is both collection and museum. So it's sort of a question of, When enough strangers, uh, when enough newspaper reporters, when enough friends bringing their friends come by to see your collection at home, that it starts to become something else, and sort of more formally, the point where people pay admission or you have to build bathrooms so that everyone that's coming in the tour bus uh, can be comfortable before they have to go again.
2: And so, do you have a favorite Icelandic museum?
0: I I feel like it is a like fifty way tie. Um, I, I love them for for different reasons. I think about the the Skólar Museum uh, on South Coast, the biggest museum outside of Reykjavik. I think fifteen thousand objects in. It's it's not even a town. It's too small to be a town in Iceland. You need fifty people, and Skólar only has twenty one. With the original curator still living uh, a stone's throw away from his life's work, he retired just a few years ago. I think in April he turned 99 and is working on something like his 26th, 27th, 28th, 29th book. So the what you can do if you are one person with a passion uh, your whole life, right? That's a stunning thing to witness. Its care with the the folkloric traditions. Uh, They've got a pair of heron legs that are kept, right? There's sort of a magical belief that if you have them, if you're in possession of this bird, that returns to shore. It will keep your sailors safe, allow them to return home. And that if you have one of these, uh, these hair and feet under your foot, you will feel the stinging of the claw when you come close to fish. And there's still anything in the language, uh, right? Sort of to give good claw, uh, which means to be a good provider.
2: <laughs> Interesting. Well, I know that you live in in Dallas, but you're writing about Icelandic museums. Have you lived in Iceland?
0: Uh, The the longest trip I've made is two months. Uh, But no, I've never been an official resident there.
2: And how many times have you visited?
0: Uh, I I think I've actually started to lose track. I think it's maybe (laughs) eight trips now.
2: Gotcha. Um, Well, you've discussed collections. I'm curious, in your own
0: life, do you collect anything? When I talk to museum people, uh, they sometimes talk about they're just two kinds of people. And when I talk to families that have collectors, they seem very clear on there is a species, a person that collects, right? It is a, it is a need. It's not even a love of the thing that they're collecting. It's the love of collecting. And I don't immediately see that, right? For a lot of my life, it was really handy to be able to travel light, right that I would have these studio apartments with almost no furniture in them uh, in my early museum days, I took really seriously the idea that theoretically uh, and really no one follows this, but theoretically, you aren't supposed to collect the kind of thing your museum collects. so I worked at a photography museum, and theoretically, I shouldn't be collecting contemporary photography though I had the gifts that from friends that were making those things so uh at this point, I have probably more shoes than a person needs. Uh, I definitely have an awful lot of books. Uh, I have a small collection of uh, sculptures and handmade things uh, from artisans in Iceland that I've been especially happy to have lately as the thought of when the next trip might be so uncertain. Uh, So I feel like in some ways I've been an anti-collector for a long time, but uh, especially this spring, being really aware of how lucky we are to have touchstones uh, when we keep them.
2: Sure. Well, what were your earliest memories of reading
0: in books? What a beautiful question. Uh, it's hard to pick them, but right? I remember uh, sitting outside my older brother's bedroom door while my parents were reading The Lord of the Rings to him. Uh, the Hobbit first and then The Lord of the Rings. Uh, I remember my childhood bookstore, Adventure. For kids, had these big rolls of stickers near the counter, and uh, furniture that were these big wooden pieces that were like ships. And uh, Jody would know when the new roll doll book was coming in for me.
2: Great. Well, um, in addition to writing, you also make books and posters, and I'm just curious: in this world of eBooks and digital files, what drew you to physically making and pre- sick of being upsold at gyms. <laughs>
1: And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. ...printing books.
0: Yeah, I was really lucky Uh, when I started graduate school at the University of Iowa. uh, I had just enough globes to know that there was a center for the book there and that I could start... uh, learning to bind, and then to print, uh, at the same point I was starting my official studies in nonfiction, And, I mean, partly, right, it's just this this love of the stuff, right, the tooth of the paper, uh, that, right, the kiss of metal type into paper, it's, right, it's just luscious, and, and sort of delicious. And I think that it's interesting, right, I, I feel like the, there are these two strong poles in the writing, there's the deep connection to the oral history, right? There's a lot of attention to, right? The the sound and the rhythm and indeed the way that I interview and research, is so much about oral history, oral traditions, uh, the stories that we tell, right? The fact of those stories, not even the facts and the stories are trying to tell. But then there's also this way in which writing is about what you see, right? Writing as a visual medium, writing as a visual art, uh, right, I think about the, the poets, who were also printers, who would change their lines to fit the composing stick. And there's something really lovely about uh, thinking about the words on the page, and not just the words, but then all of these other places. Uh, right, the front matter, the, the back matter, why a half title is so dramatic. Uh, in, in the book as it is, uh, I knew it was a thing that needed to have maps, and illustrations. And there are appendices that call back to the old plate lists, of a very different kind of printing. And uh, I feel really lucky that early in, in my writing life, I was in a letterpress class where we had to produce something out of text and image. And because I had to handset the lead type, I was choosing basically the shortest thing I'd ever written, which happened to be an essay that I'd never really felt settled with. Uh, it just it didn't quite come together. It was about an encounter with a human being named Love at the airport, but then thinking about, uh, right, symbolically, metaphorically, what it is to meet Love and not give him your number. (laughs) And once I started putting in the illustrations, uh, it was kind of magical, right, that you could sort of tell two, not, not even two stories at the same time, but you could expand the story you were telling, that the images could do one kind of work and the text could do another. And... I think having access to that, right, getting to to elaborate to embroider is uh, really rich. And I feel so lucky that I have an editor that from the get-go said, I agree, these should have images. What kind of images do you think they should be?
2: That's great. Well, as you just mentioned, you, you studied nonfiction writing as well as um, uh, a graduate certificate from the University of Iowa Center for the Book. Um, what led you to that MFA program? Had you always wanted to write nonfiction or essays?
0: I'm constantly fascinated by writers that always knew, right? They can trace their uh, paths back to books that they were making as children. Uh, I sort of always loved everything, uh, except I remember very specifically uh, there were two assignments by the time I graduated high school that just they they're they hard and uncomfortable and I really didn't like them and they stood out because they were just the two and it was a personal essay in eighth grade and a personal essay in ninth grade. So uh, I I knew that I was interested in conversation, Uh, I I knew that I was interested in ideas, Uh, I knew I was interested in images and text before I knew that writing uh, was the thing. I was on uh, a Fulbright grant in South Korea where the idea was that I was going to make pictures while I was teaching English. And, and it was just terrible, right? The, the photographs always had authority, right? You couldn't shake it off them. And then there was all of the, the additional trouble of uh, right? setting up darkroom time and getting the right film and the right paper. And while I was trying to sort that out, I was writing these letters home. And they, the letters were sort of morphing uh, and getting less letter-like. And I love them because they had all of this nuance and caveat. And there was a way to say, I don't know if this is true. I can't confirm it. I can't get another source to say so. I went back to the same person the next week and asked, is this right? And they said, where did you get this? <laughs> and once I started writing, uh, right, I could convey all that. I, I could express the my impression without uh, saying that I understood anything about Korea because while I loved it there, I never, right, it felt like it was possible the entire country was hearsay as far as I was concerned. And so I was in my early mid-20s about that point when I got home and realized there was a word for it, essay. And uh, once I had that, it opened a lot of doors. And
2: so during this global pandemic that we're in now, many museums have hosted virtual tours, or they're um, organizing Zoom Q&As with artists. What is the role of a museum during this time?
0: That's a really beautiful question. I I think if we watch museums uh, the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years, there have been a lot of shifts that are already in play that we see uh, sort of crystallizing in this moment. So there's a lot of museum thinking that moves towards how do we serve the visitor, not just The person who comes here, but the actual communities that we're in, how do we make sure that the places where we are are sending people to us and that we're going out to meet them and engage with them and find them. Uh, I think there's a real social justice moment that's coming through in museums now. And when I'm in Iceland, right, I've been thinking about this, this movement and the possibility that Iceland is really ahead of the curve and what's possible in museums. They might be shedding a light on things yet to come as you have uh, sort of sort of two camps of museum, right? You have the object-based thing, right? You have these collections that have amassed for decades and sort of tip into becoming museums. Uh, also in that category, the local history museum, what the Icelanders often refer to as the same thing from 50 different farms or the very tangible museums. Uh, and then you have these museums, that in part because they're dealing with things that don't have a lot of tangible history, tip into something else, right? The Icelandic Sea Monster Museum shouldn't be able to show you anything, right? They should be quintessentially <laughs> without objects. But what they have are 4,000 oral histories, right? That the thing that they contain, the thing that they need to hold, is story. And so Physically, they become uh, a, a nautical museum, a local history museum, a maritime museum. Uh, in some ways, a natural history museum because they've brought in the things to help you access those stories. So, I think in this period of time when when we can't get as close as we're used to, when we don't have the uh, the engagement that we're familiar with, it's really an opportunity for museums. To lean into a thing they were always doing, a thing that they were always great at, that I think is the heart of the mission, which is to figure out what stories we need to tell uh, and how to tell them and to be listening back for the stories that return. And,
2: and would you say that on that same note, that you would look to uh, some museums to be recording the history of what we're going through in the last two and a half months um, for future generations?
0: It's thing I started wondering about, I think maybe as early as March of uh, what are the the collections of of this moment going to look like, right I think about universities that have had uh, school shootings and the way that they uh, collect pieces of the memorials uh, right how many what what are the collections of handmade masks going to look like and Right, For something mm-hmm. that's going to have such duration, right that changes so much week by week, uh, I was looking at the sort of writing uh, coming out of the shutdown and how for the first few weeks, it felt like essayists, right they they were nimble. They were able to look at personal experience. they were able to to weave metaphor. They were able to think about right some manageable bit of the scope of this enormous thing in a really remarkable way. And uh, I think we're starting to see now that the wave of fiction and poetry responding in its own way. So it's a massive undertaking to try to think of uh, materially what this time looks like. And it's a thing that's evolving so quickly and that affects so many people. There, There's definitely not one story. Like I say, I feel like you need the timeline of Uh, the story we were able to tell this week, uh, right? The thing we could know uh, the next week and try and think about what this will look like over a much bigger timescale. It's just a massive undertaking. Sure. So
2: what advice would you offer for listeners who are writing their own essays or stories?
0: Ooh, what a beautiful question. Uh, I think one of my general pieces of writing slash life advice Uh, It was given to me by the writer, Lina Ferreira, who says, anchor your victories. And so in the the, sort of the big process of writing, uh, if you you thought that publishing the book was your goal, uh, that's a thing that can take, almost certainly will take years and years and years and years. And it would be a shame not to pay attention to and not to anchor the, the many milestones that happen along the way. So I think uh, if there's one thing that would be it.
2: Great. Well, what books have you read recently, fiction or nonfiction, that you would recommend?
0: Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Um, the debut of Fosia Karimi just came out in April. It's called Above Us, the Milky Way, and it it doesn't even have illustrations. It has illuminations, right? She's thinking about. Uh, family photographs from Afghanistan in the 70s and illuminated manuscripts, right? She's making paintings as well as including these family photographs in uh, what she calls a novel, and I respect her categorization, but the uh, sort of the turn of mind, the thinking of how memory works and what we have access to uh, strikes me as a very essayistic mode. And uh, the story of what what happens to families during wartime and what it is to be separated and all the people that uh, are affected deeply forever uh, is a remarkable thing to read. You'll probably need to read something else in counterbalance with it. it uh, I feel like it's sort of like devotional, right? You go in and you read part of it. And it's conveniently set up for this. It's uh, in an abecedarium structure. So right, you can read A and right, absorb that and then come back and read B.
2: Great. That sounds great. Well, again, we've been speaking with A. Kendra Green, author of the new book, The Museum of Wells You Will Never See, and Other Excursions to Iceland's Most Unusual Museums. Go buy a copy of the book now. And A. Kendra, thanks for doing this interview.
0: My pleasure. So glad to be here, Jeff. Great.